Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Cassignetti, Rosen, and Thomas in post-Daylight Savings Time downtown Washington, D.C. It's now less than a year to go until the 2022 midterms. And while for me, it's never too early for election speculation or Christmas music for that matter, we now have some real-world indications of where the electorate stands in this first year of the Biden administration. We had the first statewide Republican wins in Virginia in over a decade, where the full slate carried the election. An unexpected squeaker in New Jersey, where the incumbent Democrat won a much closer than expected race. You know, past is always prologue in politics. So what does it tell us about the GOP shot to flip control of the House and Senate next year? I know what I'd like to believe, but I could really use an expert to break it all down. And I've got one today. Nathan Gonzalez is the editor and publisher of Inside Elections, where he provides analysis for federal and statewide races. He's also an elections analyst for CQ Roll Call. I've known him since my days on Capitol Hill, and I'm glad to say he's also a thoroughly good egg. Nathan Gonzalez, welcome to 14th and G. Hey, and thank you for having me again. I, I didn't know if this was a, I didn't know if this was a tuxedo event, but I, I know you run a classy operation, so uh, we'll <laughs> pretend that I'm wearing a tuxedo. Let's just go with that. I've, uh, I've got my uh, Republican monocle and top hat uh, firmly in place. How about it? You know, Virginia is as good an American microcosm as any. It's fairly diverse. You got lots of rural, lots of suburban, some concentrated metropolitan areas here around D.C. Nathan, what did, what did the Republican gains there tell you about where the electorate is? I think uh, Virginia and New Jersey was just more evidence that I expect Republicans to have between a good and a great 2022 um, for the last, particularly for the last few months, I've been saying the Republicans, I think, are going to have a good cycle. And that was based on the history. You know, typically midterms are rough for the president's party. You look at the current environment with President uh, Joe Biden's job approval rating being, you know, mediocre at best. And then you add on New Jersey and Virginia. I, I think that's all pointing in the same direction. Uh, you, you know, Dean, I went through an exercise that only people who want to torture themselves go through. And I went back 20 years 20 years worth of election cycles to see what we were saying a year out from each election to see, you know, okay, how, how much can we really know 11, 12 months out? And what was striking to me is that in almost every cycle, by this point, we knew the trajectory of the election. Now, the magnitude or some of the specific races bounced around, you know, I'm not going to try to tell you that we were we were perfect at nailing things a year out, but right. I couldn't find a cycle where we were saying one thing, you know, in November of the off year, and then the exact opposite thing happened the next year. It was really on the level of magnitude. And so Virginia, where what I think should be good news for Republicans and uh, maybe bad news for Democrats is not necessarily Virginia, but New Jersey, right? I mean, right. Virginia was a win. You got to give Glenn Youngkin his uh, his due and, and the whole campaign. But the fact that uh, uh, Jack Chitterelli did so well in New Jersey, in a state that Biden won by almost 16 points, and that ended up being, you know, looks like about a three or four point race, uh, I think should be concerning for Democrats because you can't it's harder to dismiss. I mean, maybe Democrats, you can say, well, McAuliffe shouldn't have said that in the, in the debate or he's an old time politician or whatever. Like, what are you going to say about New Jersey? Murphy, you know, Governor Murphy didn't have a specific scandal. 
And so again, it's it's just it's kind of all pointing us in the same direction. An unusual for a New Jersey governor not to have some sort of scandal going. You know, Southern New Jersey is really fascinating. There's a congressman down there by the name of Jeff Van Drew. Uh, who actually switched parties from Democrat to Republican. This Congress, probably the you know one of those sort of uh, sweetheart election stories, the truck driver that beat the longtime New Jersey Senate president down there and, and looks like he's going to hold on to that win. There's, there's maybe something in the water there in Southern New Jersey. I mean, that's what we see with wave elections, right, Dean? And I, I kind of hesitate to use that word because everyone defines it differently. But when there's something larger going on, Candidates who don't typically, who aren't, shouldn't be in a competitive race are suddenly in competitive races and some of them win. (laughs) And that's what we see when this sort of stuff develops. Right. Nathan, what about the Trump factor? Uh, You know, so going back to 2020, uh, we know where Trump lost uh, in in Arizona, in Georgia, but the down ballot in 20 was, uh, was, was just phenomenal for Republicans, certainly given expectations and, and Trump sort of having reverse coattails here. He stayed out of Virginia, maybe gave some sort of nominal support to Youngkin, but uh, he, he didn't go in and campaign with him in the state. Is that a recipe for Republicans holding on to those down ballot gains that they made in 2020? Yeah, Yunkin was effectively able to hold together a coalition of people who voted for Trump and like Trump and some who didn't vote for him, who didn't vote for Trump and don't like Trump. And he was able to pull them together and in part because he didn't do anything to agitate Trump or to kind of draw the wrath of of the former president. And uh, he, he, or the people that are surrounding the former president, uh, you know, convinced Trump that he didn't have to be on the ground, right. That, that he could literally phone it in and then, you know, and, and then take credit for Yunkin's win just by, <laughs> just by doing that. But that's a little bit different that Yunkin, he won in a, he won the nomination at a convention early in the summer, didn't have a drawn out multi-million dollar primary that was on the airway uh, on TV about who was more pro-Trump or not. And that's a little bit different than some of the primaries in some of the big U.S. Senate races or gubernatorial races where it is crowded and competitive and the Republicans are all, you know, most of them in those races are trying to say, hey, no, I'm, I'm, I'm closest to Trump. I'm, you know, I'm, right. I'm the one who's, who's, on, who's on that side. And then they're going to have to pivot to a general election where Youngkin you know, could pivot his message and use his personal money uh, months before the general to to try to reach out to those general election voters. Well, Republicans really did, against expectations, close the gap in the House in 2020. Right now, the Democrats have a 222 to 213 majority out of 435 seats. So they need a net gain of five to get the speaker's gavel back. Where are you looking? What what are the bellwether sort of districts out there uh, that are going to tell you uh, if Republicans can uh, get this done? Well, overall, I think Republicans are likely to get it done. I mean, history shows the, the president's party loses an average of 30 seats in the midterms. And as you said, they needed five. Uh, redistricting has, has thrown a little bit of a wrench into the whole cycle in terms of we don't know what the final districts look like in about 30 states still. And so it's helpful. You know, this is not a national race, right? This is a district by district uh, slog. And so until we get those pieces, um, I I don't know the Republicans will make huge gains. And the reason why I say that is because they, they gained 12 in 2020 that they, they kind of already 
reached into that pot of available districts and now they're trying to get over the top and, and then and then add to it. But if Democrats are going to be, if we're going to see a similar depression of 10, 11 points, 10, 11, 12 points that we saw in Virginia and New Jersey, then Republicans will rack up big gains. Um, the, la- the last piece that I think on, well, at least another piece on redistricting is that where Republicans have been in control, they haven't necessarily been as aggressive in terms of creating more opportunities. They've been, you know, looking at Texas, for example, they've been more satisfied in taking seats that they already have, making them more Republican and pushing them off the the, list, the battleground or off the off the battlefield, making them less competitive. And so that could ultimately limit how the ceiling for Republicans, because that also means that there are more Democratic districts. There are some Democratic vote sinks um, that will right. be very difficult for Republicans, even in a, you know, if we're going to call it a wave election or not. Yeah, because I imagine so much of that work has already been done. Republicans, uh, one of the one of the undertold stories, I think, of the Obama era is uh, just how many state houses Republicans flipped over, particularly in 2010. So uh, this is really controlled by the census every 10 years. Uh, and, and if you control the state houses in the census year, uh, you know, you get to you get to draw those maps uh, a lot more in your favor. And and maybe a lot of that, you know, a lot of that work has already been done by Republicans. So it's it's less about going into uh, what are the Democratic districts than than shoring up the ones that are already Republican. Yeah. And it's a it's a combination of states that we're watching. Right. I mean, the states that Republicans control that we're watching, Texas, Florida, Georgia and North Carolina, um, there are. Uh, and then we're watching a few states that Democrats are essentially in control, Illinois, New York, Maryland, I throw in New Mexico. Then there are the wild cards of the commission states, such as Michigan and California. So this is all this is a fast and furious uh, time for for map drawing with with significant consequences. And and I have a question about the Trump factor when it comes to redistricting, uh, because how uh, Republicans in particular are banking on the Trump coalition, specifically the 2020 coalition, being the future of the Republican Party, right? This this blue collar um, populist party that is appealing to more voters of color. Uh, My question is, how much of that is is specific to Trump? Or how much of it is indeed a defining moment for the parties? And we're not going to know that till we get a few more cycles under our belt. But the maps have to be drawn under certain under these conditions. Right. And so that'll that, that has potential consequences when we're talking about particularly Hispanic voters in the uh, in the Rio Grande Valley or in South Florida, for example. Well, one area where the maps are already drawn uh, are the state lines that govern the Senate races. This is, I think, control of the Senate is, is, is a little more uncertain. It's split 50-50. The GOP needs to hold seats by retiring members in North Carolina, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania. And they got to flip a seat somewhere like Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, uh, or New Hampshire. Senator Hassan got uh, pretty good news this week when Governor Sununu declined to get in the race against her. Uh, she's had some tough polling numbers, but what are the most what are the most interesting Senate races on your list, Nathan? Yeah, well, the the interesting thing from a, a broad perspective first is that 
the battlefield or the battleground, it, the conditions are bad for Democrats, but the battleground is not terrible. For example, the, you know, the eight battleground races that we've identified so far are the four Democratic ones that you mentioned. And then on the Republican side, well, I think you also North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and I'll throw Florida in there too. I'm not, Florida is not a swing state, but I still think it's, it's competitive. That Biden won six of those eight states. And we know that there is a strong correlation between the partisanship of a senator and how it votes for the presidential race. But uh, the asterisk to that is that Biden won five of those eight by two points or less. And so if we're if we're seeing a drop off for Democratic candidates, then those are no longer as certain in terms of opportunities for or, or victories for for Democrats. So I, I completely agree that the Senate the, the fight for the Senate is more uh, in play or, or more, more at risk, more uh, of a toss-up than the House. But in this environment, I feel like you'd still rather be, uh, you'd still rather be Republicans you know, on, the, on the Republican side in terms of finding the right seats to make that happen. I mean, w- the unanswered questions on the Senate side are still, what is Ron Johnson doing in Wisconsin? I think that's going to be competitive no matter whether he decides to run for re-election or not. You know, who indeed do Republicans now get uh, in New Hampshire? Right. Uh, I think that Sununu, that was that was a, it was a, a hit, I guess, to Republican chances. But in this again, in this political environment, I think that that's still a, a very competitive race, although there's pieces that the uh, Republicans have to figure out. And I'm I'm still fascinated by Arizona because I think that is a case where what is in President Trump's best interest and what is in the Republican establishment's best interest, and I don't mean that as a pejorative, <laughs> are, two different, are, are two different things. Uh, long you know, long see, has it been, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah I interest. mean, I, it, is, it is what it is, but, but you know, having Ducey, Governor Ducey on the sidelines, yeah. and it, it, but you have then five Republicans battling it out to face, you know, Democrats' best fundraiser uh, in the, on the planet. It's just it's that's a good example of that tension that still lives within the GOP. Yeah, it, you know, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania—they've all got uh, you've got retiring members in those states, and you've got you've got sort of crowded primary fields that are, I think, winnowing out. And you're seeing that "quote unquote" establishment uh, versus Trump slash populist candidates, you know, sort of battle it out there. I mean, no one wants to be labeled establishment. <laughs> But you can, you know, you kind of get a sense of where they're coming from. I think one of the more fascinating states, and it was, you know, it was completely dispositive in the 2020 election for the Senate is is Georgia. And uh, it looks like Herschel Walker, former UGA and NFL football star, uh, is going to is going to run away with the Republican nomination there for Senate. Uh, He's facing incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, who won his special election there uh, against the appointed senator. What, what are you seeing? Are you seeing anything there in Georgia? Because, you know, from the Republican perspective, you think Warnock is a lot like Doug Jones, right? The, the appointed senator from Alabama, who was sort of a dead man walking for uh, his, his entire time in Congress because you knew he was going to get beat. But he's really not. Right. I, I think Georgia is just a fundamentally more competitive state than Alabama, which gives Senator Warnock uh, a much better chance than than what Jones. I mean, Jones was more of a fluky win uh, than what Warnock was. I mean, it was, it was close, but yeah, you know, the the primary on the Republican side is almost essentially over, and that's a, a place where where Trump won. I mean, there's 
there was skepticism on the Republican establishment side uh, with regard to, you know, Herschel Walker living in Texas most of his recent adult life and having to move back to Georgia or uh, the mental health issues that he has been public about, but that has also uh, resulted in some uh Pretty, we'll just say, pretty negative stories. Uh, your folks are, your, you know, folks that are listening are, are probably aware of some of those. So, I, you know, Georgia is going to be yet another. It's coming off an expensive, high-profile, two high-profile races in Georgia, and, and it's going to have, it's going to have another one. And then, you know, we haven't talked at all about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a, another developing issue on the Republican side, where President Trump has already uh, endorsed Sean Parnell, and uh, and Parnell uh, the well, just issues that he's been dealing with, with kind of an ongoing divorce are, uh, I think, probably troubling for troubling. Republicans who are who are focused on on winning back the Senate and in an important seat. And I will be fascinated to see how how that plays out, because I don't think Trump Trump doesn't admit mistakes. Have you heard this, Dean? Um, and, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware. Yeah. For, for him to back off of an endorsement, I think, is very unlikely. So I don't know what the exit or what the plan is because the Parnell research is kind of adding up. Yeah. It's, you know, you have to remember no matter how red or blue you think a state is and Virginia is another example, but you, you can't beat somebody with nobody and campaign candidates matter and campaigns matter. You can take all the sort of the national extrapolation we're doing away from Virginia. But the fact is Terry McAuliffe ran a terrible race. Uh, he was not, they just on, in very general terms was not a very appealing candidate when you, no matter what the demographics or the trends are, if you got a crap candidate, you're going to have a crap result. Although in New Jersey, I haven't heard nearly the same criticism about the, the campaign that governor Murphy ran. But when you look at the underperformance compared to 2020, it was about the same. Right. I mean, right. it was it was just the only reason why New Jersey uh, Republicans didn't win New Jersey is that it's just more of a Democratic state than what Virginia is. So putting those two together, you know, makes for a different picture. Well, let's talk about the man regarding whom a lot of these races seem to be about maybe in reaction to that, of course, is the president of the United States, Joe Biden. His uh, his approval rating has been in steady decline. Uh, USA Today had him as low as 38 percent. Uh, the 538 average has him right now at 43% approval. Pretty dismal for an incumbent president. What do you look for in terms of presidential approval numbers? Is it still a relevant statistic uh, when, when you talk about House and Senate races? Short answer is absolutely. Um, I don't have a magic number in terms of, you know, does the president need to be at 43 or 47 or 48.5 or i don't i don't think about it in that terms but when we're heading into a midterm election that is typically a performance review on the president and a majority or at least a plurality of americans don't like the job that he's doing that's a problem for his party <laughs> and so right. that that's that is i think how how we should look at it and and whether it's fair or not whether whether he inherited problems or not he he's in control democrats are in control of congress and, and they're being held you know responsible for the direction of the country and they so far have not they don't have the the trust of enough voters i think to 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 keep the majorities uh, but that's what the fight i think is going to be about over the next over the next year i mean on a large issue perspective i mean i think the economy is going to be the number one issue, but then you put a lot of things underneath that. You put inflation, supply chain, 
healthcare, immigration, COVID, it, it all sort of fits under, uh, under an economic um, umbrella. So if the economy improves, I think that voters will be less inspiration to change. But when and if that happens in terms of the country getting stronger it is still a question mark. Yeah, I think the uh, producer price index, uh, the, the, the main gauge of inflation came out today at something like 6%. Which is, uh, which is an astronomical number, something we probably haven't seen in nearly 30 years, uh, this level of inflation. Education was an issue there in Virginia. You know, I, I, love, your, I love the work you did and going back and, and looking at some of the predictive uh, analytics a year out. A lot of the reason we can kind of gauge that, though, is is because of history and, and past being prologue. I think one of the only times in the modern era that the party out of out of White House power has not improved their numbers in Congress was 2002. And that was in the wake of 9-11. So maybe you need some sort of large external event to avoid to avoid history. But you think I talk about issues. I mean, if Joe Biden could finally once and for all cure the pandemic, uh, tame inflation and maybe solve the border, you know, does he <laughs> does he have a shot at holding on to his congressional majorities? Small, small tasks. <laughs> that's all. That's all you need. Small, to do. <laughs> small issues to deal with. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's simple. Well, what was interesting about in Virginia with COVID that in terms of which candidate voters trusted to handle COVID, uh, they supported Terry McAuliffe. Um, voters, uh, a majority of Virginia voters uh, supported a an employer mandated vaccine, according to the CNN exit poll. Uh, and those voters supported Terry McAuliffe. But COVID as an issue priority was a distant third. Jobs in the economy was one and education was number two. So in terms of 2022, if we hopefully are moving beyond COVID or it's just lessening in its impact on our daily lives, I don't know that Democrats will get a lot of credit. It's almost expected that we get past this. I don't know how much extra credit the Democratic Party gets for that. Nathan, let me uh, let me close on a question I like to ask. I, I had our good friend Dave Wasserman on right before before the 2020 election. You know, he was predicting and and, and Dave is the analyst uh, that that really focuses on uh, on house races. It's kind of his thing. You know, he was predicting pretty healthy democratic gains in the house. Uh, you know, just weeks before the election and it, and it just, you know, the down ballot went in the other direction. What is the state of polling? You know, we, we talk about cell phones versus landlines. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious now you've got a lot of Republicans who either don't respond to pollsters or try to deceive pollsters. Do you feel like polling is fixed? Is it getting fixed or are, is this just going to be a, a largely inaccurate sort of measurement? Yeah, it's good. I'm glad this is a, a three hour answer to this last question that you posed here, <laughs> Dean. This is great. Keep um, it on as long as possible. <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. Um, I, I think polling is still useful and in need of repair, but is not irreparably broken, I guess is what I is okay. how I would put it. Um, okay. let, let's look at last week, Virginia. The polling showed uh, the in the final weeks that this was going to be a very close race and, and and even Yunkin with a slight advantage going into election day. And that's exactly what happened, Dean. <laughs> now, but then let's go to New Jersey. More limited public polling, that was that was off, right? I mean, it was not nearly as accurate. So what what would cause, I don't know, maybe if there had been more data and more 
groups going into New Jersey that um, that it, that the the true contest would have been identified. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, I think that the mode that pollsters, at least some of the pollsters that I'm talking to, the the lie, the cell phone versus landline is a, is sort of a thing, an argument of the past. I mean, people should be calling a significant number of cell phones. Pollsters should be calling, but also now using multi-mode, right? Reaching out to people with text, uh, email and phones and trying to make sure you're getting the 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 broadest array of the of the electorate right. um the and the thing that i keep coming back to the polling to me appears to be most inaccurate when trump is actually on the ballot oh interesting um, that in 16 and 20 i i think it was it was off well let's you know 16 most people were not expecting trump to win uh anyone 18, though, our projections based on, you know, particularly at the end, based on data, were pretty good. And I think maybe I or we, maybe we got a little overconfident. They're like, okay, 16 was a problem at the presidential level, 18. All right, you know, pretty good. And then 20, I would say not terrible, but obviously the direction, I mean, I, I with Wasserman, you know, my, my friend and competitor that we were, I was expecting Democrats to expand the majority and they obviously didn't. But again, that was another race with, or another election cycle with Trump on the ballot. So that's why I think 2022 will be particularly interesting. And maybe we should not relearn or re- <laughs> redo what happened. Then maybe we, we get, you know, we're pretty accurate. And then when when I think I think Trump's going to run again in 2024, you know, do do we are we in for these these little surprises? I, I don't know. I could go on, you know, 2020, based on the data, it showed that Biden was going to win. And Biden won. Right. Uh, you know, we, we kind of forget some of these like, oh, there it is. It's all terrible. It's like, no, it, it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't <laughs> it's that old it negative. wasn't as bad as what some people want to say. That old negative reinforcement bias. Right. Well, that's fascinating. It, you know, Nathan, the old the old truism, uh, the only poll that counts is the one on Election Day. Right. Which is usually, you know, it's uh, some fo- is usually what losing candidates say. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <by> <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's, like, right. it's like number one. If someone, a candidate says that they're losing. <laughs> so Inside elections, Nathan Gonzalez, always fun, always insightful. I will, we will definitely do this again before the actual 2022 midterms come back around. Nathan, thanks so much for joining me today on 14th and G. No problem. Anytime. <laughs>